Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, open with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 13 to 18 today. Continuing our series, working through 1 Thessalonians. If it's your first time with us or first time in a long time, we'll catch you up. So no worries there. I'm just going to jump right in and read to you our passage today. And then we'll talk about it. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 13, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the words on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We have some uh, out in that Welcome Center, and so stop by there on your way out. If you do not own a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to have a copy on us so that you'd have God's Word in your hand. Here's what verse 13 through 18 say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then... We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let me pray. Lord, as we look at your word given to us, we ask that you would use it now. Quicken our minds and our spirits to receive from you, your spirit, what you have for us today And I pray specifically for my brothers and my sisters who are grieving the death of someone they love, that you'd minister to them through this word. And for those of us who are not in that place right now, we pray that you would prepare us for the day when we will be in that place. So use your word mightily, powerfully among us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, through this series, we've been talking about keeping awake. That's been our theme because, as we'll see next week when we come to the passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that's what Paul encourages believers to do, to keep awake for the return of Jesus, that he's coming back again, and he's saying to us, be ready for that. And one of the things that we have seen as we've looked at that is that being ready for the return of Jesus has way more to do with how we live our day-to-day lives than it does with being able to identify how certain current events fit on a timeline uh, or how certain current events might be fulfillment of biblical prophecies. That those things, while not unimportant, are not ultimately how we are prepared for the return of Jesus. That's what we've been looking at so far. And this passage is a wonderful example of that same reality that what Paul is writing to us is not so much to this Thessalonian church, hey, I want you to sort of know this event or know this timeline or know this prophecy. What Paul is saying is, I want you to remember what I've taught you because I I want you to be able to grieve with hope. That's what we just read, that as Christians, we are to be people who grieve with hope. So here's what was going on in the church at Thessalonica. As a result of the persecution that they were enduring for the sake of their newfound faith in Jesus, as well as probably just because of the natural events of life, people they loved and cared about who were part of the church had died. And as a result, they were grieving. I mean, they were deeply grieving. And they had said to Timothy, who'd come to visit them and was returning to Paul with a report, they were saying, what about the people that we love that have died? Are they going to miss out on some part of the Lord's return 
Is there some way that they're going to get a lesser experience? And Paul, having talked to them about those things when he was with them, is now writing this letter to them and this section of this letter, not just to tell them details on a timeline about the Lord Jesus' return, but to comfort them because they're sad, because they're in grief, and they need to know the hope that they have in the return of Jesus and how that hope can be applied in the face of death. And I imagine that many of us are in that place. We have lost loved ones this year, yes? Some of us have lost people close to us in the last year to two years. And even if it's not in the last year to two years, many of us have lost people. We love spouses, brothers, sisters, family members, close friends, whether it be because of COVID or whether it be related to cancer, sickness, illness, accident. We've endured the grief of death. And if we haven't yet, we will, right? such as part of life. And so my hope today is this, is as we come to this wonderful passage that describes the return of the Lord Jesus, I want my aim to be Paul's aim. And I want to teach you how to be comforted in the face of death. That's what I've been praying for you this week is that God would take this text and use it mightily in your life if you find yourself grieving and you need to know, how do I grieve with hope? What does that look like? Because that can be challenging. Yes, would you agree with that? That can be so challenging. And so my hope is that you will hear the compassion of the Lord through Paul in these words. He's not intending just to convey to you some truths about the return of the Lord Jesus. He's wanting to convey those to you so that if you find yourself in a season of grief or you will find yourself in a season of grief, that you know how to access this truth in a way that comforts you. That's the heart of Paul for you. It's the heart of your pastor for you today here is that you'd be comforted in the face of grief because Jesus is coming back. And it's a reality in which we place our hope. So looking at this, here's what I wanna offer you. I've got... I want to talk about eight observations, eight observations about grief and comfort and hope and Christ's return. Eight observations about those things. And then we're going to come to the Lord's table together. So observation number one, the truth is crucial to comfort. That's observation number one. The truth is crucial to comfort. Look again at verse 13 at the beginning of our passage and verse 18 at the end of our passage. And we hear these words, Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed is the first sentence or the first part of a sentence that Paul offers us. You can also translate that word uninformed, ignorant, but the ESV is doing a good job being gentle with us here. So he's saying, we don't want you to be unaware. We don't want you to not have the knowledge that we're about to impart to you. So everything Paul is about to say, he's saying, these are truths that you need. And we don't want you to be lacking knowledge about them. And then in verse 18, the other end of the passage, what does he say? encourage one another with these words. In other words, what I'm about to tell you, I don't want you to not know it. You need to know it. And then at the end of the passage, now everything I've just told you, encourage one another with those words. If we're gonna encourage one another with them, we have to what? We have to know them. And then we have to share them with one another. We have to remind one another of them. We have to bring them up with one another so that we could encourage one another with those words. So the first thing we see here is that Paul is saying in the face of death, one of the things that you need to be comforted is the truth. The truth is what comforts people, not falsehoods that sound comforting in the face of death. 
Now, as a pastor, I have the privilege of being in these sacred moments with people when they've lost someone they love. I, I officiate funerals, and I'll be present for those, and graveside services where we're committing someone to the grave. And those are really special and sacred moments to be in with someone. But one of the things you'll notice as a pastor when you're in those moments is quite often people will say things that are far from the truth because they sound comforting in that moment. And little pastor secret, it can be challenging to get up and go, okay, what was just said was not true. What am I gonna do as I come up to point us back towards the truth and remind us of that? And you know that it's just human nature. Sometimes we just... We just say things because, oh, I feel tense and tight and I just want people to be comforted and so I'm gonna say this thing. But friends, one of the things that Paul is sharing with us here right off the bat is never believe that saying something false is actually going to produce the kind of comfort that's needed. Only the truth can produce the kind of comfort that's needed. Does that make sense? That's the first thing. Now, here's what else it tells us. It tells us that comfort is not just about our emotional state. Our minds matter when it comes to comfort as well. So immediately we, we think about being comforted in the face of losing a loved one and we think that's an emotional reality. And of course it is, but it's not just an emotional reality. What happens in our minds during our grief matters very much. And that can be the hardest part to take control of. Our thoughts and, and pushing them towards the truth that can be one of the hardest things to do in the midst of grief because the feeling of grief is overwhelming. But what I want to point you to is that it matters very much what we choose to do with our minds and the, the things we choose to repeat to ourselves, the things we choose to rehearse and to put our eyes in front of when we're in grief. It's deeply important that we remember that the truth is critical when it comes to being comforted in the face of grief and falsehood does not comfort. Now, let me give a word of warning here because while we want to be people who remind one another of the truth as a part of grieving so that our minds could go in the right direction as well as our hearts, we don't want to be Job's friends. And may remember Job's friends? If you've read through this, if you haven't, the story of Job is a story of great suffering in the Old Testament. It's a man who suffers other than Jesus probably more than any other person in all of Scripture. He loses his kids. He loses all of his wealth, all his possessions. He loses everything. And in the midst of that, some friends come and they join him and they sit with him in silence for a while. And while they do that, they're doing pretty good. And then after a little while, they decide they need to talk. And when they talk, they say things that don't help. They assume that Job must be suffering because of his own sin. That's really the, the guiding, underpinning uh, falsehood that they've bought into. And so everything else they say, even while much of it is actually theologically true about God, it's underpinned by this presumption that Job must have brought them on himself. And because it is, it doesn't help. And it actually ends up, like you can say, a true thing underpinned by a false idea. And as a result, it's inaccurate in the moment for the situation and unhelpful. And as a result, God says to Job's friends in Job 42, by the way, you didn't speak about me rightly as my servant Job did. And all the things you intended to comfort actually caused more harm. Wouldn't that just be awful to be told by God? I went into this moment. I wanted to be comforting. I wanted to be helpful. I thought I was speaking the truth. And what happened was God said, uh-uh, you were absolutely the opposite of helpful. 
In fact, you so much so you need Job to pray for you. The guy that you were trying to comfort now needs to comfort you. That's how bad a job you did. So we know that the truth is necessary and critical, but we don't want to be people who are like Job's friends who just try to say, all I need to do is just say truths in this moment and that, that, that will be enough. There has to be a tactfulness to that. Can we all agree on that? All right, that's observation number one. Observation number two is that grief and hope are not mutually exclusive. Praise God. Grief and hope are not mutually exclusive. Look at verse 13 again. It says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now he is pointing out there the reality that someone who believes in Jesus and therefore has the hope of his death and his resurrection and his return should grieve in a way that's different from someone who doesn't have that same belief. He's definitely saying that. But I also want you to see that one of the things he's saying is he expects that you and I would grieve. He expects that there would be grief and hardship and mourning and sorrow in our lives. And in fact, we might even go so far as to say you don't fully express or experience the hope he has to offer until you grieve. That you cannot have the kind of hope that he wants you to have until you accept that grief is not exclusive from that. Now look, some of us are prone to sort of take our Christian walk in such a way that we might be prone to sort of dismiss hardship as not that hard because, hey, Jesus is going to make it all good. He's going to make it all right. And there's some beauty of an expression of faith in that. But can we also acknowledge that sometimes what we're doing is we're short-circuiting grief because we don't want to have to feel it. We don't want to have to sit with it. We don't want to have to wade through it. And one of the things that this passage tells us, along with some other things, is grief and hope are not mutually exclusive. You can grieve deeply and still be very much full of hope. You can grieve deeply and still be very much full of hope. So we are to grieve, but we are to grieve with hope in a way that's informed by hope. Now, what does that mean? Let me give you my best sort of sense of this. Grieving with hope probably means that grief is real and deep and not rushed through. Let me say that again. Sorry, I don't know why that cracked up there. And not rushed through, but that our experience of loss does not dictate our decisions or have the loudest voice or final say about our sense of value and purpose or our emotional and mental life. Let me say that again because that was, that was kind of very thick, right? So let me say it again. Grieving with hope probably means grief is real and deep and not rushed through. That's the first part. But that our experience of loss and therefore the grief we feel, it doesn't dictate to us the decisions that we make. In other words, we're not, we're not led, led by our grief into making decisions that, that wouldn't honor God or wouldn't be right. So they don't dictate our actions to us. That grief doesn't nor does it have the loudest voice. And that can be hard because death is loud and grief is loud. Would you agree with that? Sometimes it feels like it's the only thing you can hear. But grieving with hope looks like surrendering to the Lord again and again over time so that that voice of grief is not the loudest voice in our mind and in our heart. The voice of God and of hope does become louder. not the loudest voice, 
nor does it have the final say about these things, about our sense of value. Grief doesn't tell us this is how valuable you are. The love of God tells us how valuable we are. It doesn't have the final say or the loudest voice about our sense of purpose. In other words, our grief doesn't tell us or redirect our purpose in a new way unless, of course, God is using that grief because we haven't been living according to our true purpose in him. And then he would use that grief to redirect us in that way. But it does not dictate to us our value. It does not dictate to us our purpose. It is not the loudest voice when it comes to our emotional and our mental life. That's my best estimation in a kind of short summary way. Say, what does it mean to grieve with hope, right? It means to grieve deeply, and yet there are some limitations upon that grief that hope places upon it. Now listen, go back to the main point of of observation number two is that grief and hope are not mutually exclusive. And we don't have to look any further than our Lord in this, who in John chapter 11 weeps at the grave of Lazarus. But remember that before he comes to the grave of Lazarus and he grieves in the face of death, he had said before that that he delayed coming while Lazarus was sick so that Lazarus would die so that he could raise him from the dead. In other words, it was his plan to do that. He didn't say, well, I'm gonna go right away and make sure I heal him before he dies. He, he wanted to show and display his power over the grave. Therefore, he waited for several days where he was before he went. And then he went, and in spite of the fact that he knew this was his plan all along to come to the grave and raise Lazarus, he still wept. Because grief and hope are not music. Look, if anyone ever, if anyone ever, Uh, you would think would have the ability to sort of walk up to a situation of death and be like indifferent about it because he's like, well, I'm gonna raise him in a minute, so who cares? He doesn't do that. He weeps over the reality of death caused by sin in the world. Not Lazarus's sin, but just sin bringing about death in the world. He grieves that. He grieves the loss of his friend and he grieves the hurt and pain that his other friends are feeling as a result of that loss. He doesn't shy away from that. So that's number two. Grief and hope are not mutually exclusive. Observation number three, those who have died in Christ are with God. Those who have died in Christ are with God. Look at verses 13 and 14 now, and here's what he says. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's a key phrase. We're gonna, we gotta do a little doctrinal work there for a minute, but let's, he's gonna use that phrase again. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. All right, so here's what I want you to understand. The people that you love who have left this life, who have died and who are in the Lord are with God now. And the first evidence of that is how Paul is actually using this phrase, those who have fallen asleep. Now, here's the doctrinal work we have to do. Some people throughout the history of the church have used this kind of a phrase and taken it to mean that when we die, our souls go to sleep and that they're not with God, but they're sort of in some state where they are sitting quietly asleep and one day then God will wake them up. You need to understand that is false. That is not true. I'm gonna show you why. All right, so the first thing is how this phrase itself is used. When Paul says that they've fallen asleep, he doesn't use that literally in the sense of they're just asleep. He's using it as a colloquialism, as a metaphor, if you will, for death. 
right? Jesus, in that passage we just talked about in John chapter 11, actually says about Lazarus, he has fallen asleep. He knew Lazarus was dead, right? Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter eight, Jesus says about her, she's not dead, she's only fallen asleep. Now, he doesn't mean that she's not really dead. He means that in my presence, death of the body is just like a nap. That's how powerful I am. So he's using this phrase, fallen asleep, to indicate his power over death, but also as a metaphor for just a common phrase for death. So that's the first thing. Paul is not using this to teach that souls are just asleep for a little while until Jesus comes. They are very much in the presence of God. Now, the second thing is that we have Paul teaching in other places. Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. Paul is there talking to the Philippian church, and he says, I can't decide which, is going, which one God is going to do, whether he's going to take me to heaven or whether he's going to leave me here with you. And what does he say? He says, to depart and be with the Lord is far better. In other words, his understanding is that when I die, I will be in the presence of the Lord. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In other words, what Paul teaches us clearly numerous places in scripture is that when we die, we are present with the Lord if we are in Christ, in that moment. Here's what I want you to receive as comfort today, church. It should be no small comfort to us that the people that we love who have died, they're with the Lord. Do you hear me? They're in his presence. Now listen, you're pretty great. But if I have to choose between being in your presence and being in the Lord's presence, there's not much of a debate there. Now, I'm not making light of that. That's just a reality. Psalm 16, verse 11 says this. In your presence, there's fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen to that. That's where your loved one is. Your loved one is in the place where there is fullness of joy in the presence of the one at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Does that give you some comfort? That's where they are. If they're in Christ, that's where they are. Their soul is not asleep. Their body's in the grave, but their soul is in the presence of Jesus. Friends, that is incredibly important for us to recognize. By the way, in verse 14 then, when he says, and when because we believe in the resurrection. He says, and when Jesus comes, he will bring them with him. And we're gonna to touch on that in just a moment. But he's not gathering them from some other place to bring them. He's bringing them because they're with him now. And he's saying, okay, let's go. It's time. So I love the idea there, by the way. You have experienced joy in this life, right? I mean, you've experienced the joy of the birth of a child or the joy of a good friendship, right? The joy of a wonderful meal. You've experienced the joy of a promotion at work. You've experienced the joy of maybe marriage. I mean, there's so many different joys you've experienced, but you have never experienced fullness of joy. You've never experienced the kind of joy that is from the tips of your toes to the tips of your fingers to the top of your head. Where all the joy that there is to experience, you experience it. That does not exist in this world. But in the presence of the Lord, there is what? Fullness of joy. In other words, your loved one right now is in the place where the maximum amount of joy that can be experienced is experienced. 
That's what the psalmist tells us. Praise God for that. Observation number four, for comfort in the face of death. The return of Christ is not a new or trendy source of hope. The return of Christ is not a new or trendy source of, look, in the face of death, you need something substantial to give you hope. You need something that has stood the test of time, not some new idea that you go, ooh, I like that. That will help me. Or I found the thing no one else has ever thought of. I bet that will be helpful. Look at what Paul says in verse 15 when he's writing to them. It's just a quick phrase that we might just read past, but he says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Pause right there. Now, when you read that, you might think that what Paul is saying is God spoke like a vision to him or gave him a prophetic word. More than likely, that's not what he's talking about. What Jesus, uh, what, what Paul is saying, this phrase is most commonly used to say, this is the truth that has been handed down from generation to generation. In other words, when he says, this is a word from the Lord, he's saying, this is what Jesus taught the apostles. And this is what the apostles are now teaching the church. And you and I receive that. Now generation upon generation of believers have believed this, that Jesus having died and been raised will return. And when he returns, he will bring with him those who have died in him and we will be with him and with them again. The beauty of that is you're not the first person to believe it. You are a part of a generational group of people who said, we have staked our hope on this thing and is a substantial source of hope. And you and I need that. We need hope that is meaty, right? We don't want the vegetarian meal here. Forgive me if you're a vegetarian. I just don't know how you go without the beef, man. Right, and it's okay, because Paul, you know, we're told we need the meat of God's word. So I feel, I feel okay about it. We need, we need the, the meat of hope, right? And that's what Paul is giving us here. He's saying you, you have a meaty hope that's been the hope of those before you and before them and before them and before them. This is not a new thing. Observation number five. Those who have died in Christ will be honored when he returns. Now, I love this one. Look again at verse 15 and 16. This one might be my favorite one of the eight observations, all right? Not that I like them all. They're all my children, but this one's my favorite. Those who have died in Christ will be honored when he returns. Verse 15 and 16, he says this. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So here's what you... I want you to notice is he seems to be making a big deal there in order to comfort the Thessalonians about the fact that those who have died are going to go before us who are alive. He's saying, they're going to, they're going to, we're not going to precede them. They're going to precede us. And then at the end of verse 16, he says, the dead in Christ will rise second. No. What does he say? First. Well, why, why is that something important. Like why would he, why would that be a comfort? Hey, we're going to be raised. They're going to be raised, but they're going to go first. Why should that comfort the Thessalonians? Because remember, they're thinking, are they going to miss out on something? Is there some part of life in Christ that they're not going to get? And the image that he's using is one that would have been familiar in the ancient world. See, whenever a new ruler or whenever a dignitary would come into a city, the leaders of that city, those who were the most honored people in that city would go out 
to welcome them outside the city and then bring them back into the city. In other words, they were bringing them into the authority that was theirs as the ruler of that place. And the image that Paul is painting is when Jesus comes back, far from missing out on something, those who have already died are going to be the ones going out to greet him and bring him into his kingship. They're going to get the place of honor, not those who are alive. So if you're worried that they're gonna miss out on something, they're not missing out on anything. They are actually in a place of privilege that they are with the Lord now, experiencing fullness of joy, and then they will be the ones who get the most honor when Jesus returns. Isn't that cool? Listen, the other thing you need to see here is that he's connecting the resurrection of Jesus to our own resurrection. Here's the picture he just painted. He said, when Jesus comes back, and I'm gonna touch on the whole archangel and cry of command and trumpet in just a second. He says, all those things are gonna sound. Then here's what's gonna happen. Those who are with the Lord, their souls are with the Lord, are going to return with him. Those who have already died, their bodies will be raised first before. Let's just imagine that it's gonna happen tomorrow. Actually, let's imagine it's gonna happen today. Can we do that? So this is gonna happen, let's imagine it happens today and those who have gone before us, their bodies are gonna be raised from the grave, reunited with their souls and they will receive resurrection, glorified bodies that will never grow sick, never age, never diminish, never have any part of what they experience now. None of the death that they experience will mark them anymore. Perfect resurrection, glorified bodies as Jesus' resurrection body. They will have that. They will meet the Lord in the air. Then after that, those of us who are still alive will be raised. Our bodies will be glorified in the process. And then, depending on what you think, we'll either go into heaven with Jesus for seven years or we'll come right down and begin his millennial, his kingdom reign on the earth. And that's all interesting discussion, but not that pertinent to the details today, right? But here's the point. Because he was raised they will be raised and we will be raised. They in the place of privilege and then those who are alive after them. And Paul's point is to say, he says in 1 Corinthians 15 too, he says, some argue that there is no resurrection from the dead. But if we're not going to be raised, then not even Jesus was raised, he says. I think that's verse 12 and 13 of chapter 15. And then in like verse 21, he says, but because we know Jesus was raised, therefore we know there is a resurrection from the dead. In other words, the two are inseparably linked. If he rose from the dead, then we also will rise from the dead. There's no debating it. There's no doubt about it. It must happen. It will happen because he has been raised. We will be raised. There's nothing that can prevent it from happening. There is no power that can cause your future resurrection and the resurrection of those who have gone before us in the Lord. There is no power in heaven or in hell that can prevent your resurrection because he has been raised. Somebody say amen to that. Okay, good. We talk about the resurrection. There should be a lot of amens, right? So that's observation number five. Now, observation number six the death they experienced will be undone. And I touched on this, but let me just go a little further. Look at verse 16. When he says in verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Here's what he's describing. In describing Christ's return in that way, what Paul wants you to see is it's in some ways the opposite of his first coming. The first time he came, and yes, there were angels in the sky talking to some shepherds, but it was kind of in the middle of nowhere and it was pretty secretive. 
and he sort of snuck in to a manger quietly. When he comes again, it's not gonna be like that. He's not coming as a humble, lowly baby. He's coming as a king on high who rules and reigns and the archangel and the cry of command and the trumpet of God is a, is a demonstration. It's an emblematic of, he's gathering his people. The trumpet sounds as if to say, everybody who's mine, it's time. And now you come with me or you come up to me and as you do, I'm declaring to the world, to death and to the devil that they have no more authority. It is done. I'm ushering in a new kingdom, a new day. I'm coming in fullness and in power and nothing will stop me. That's what Jesus is declaring there. Now here's the beauty of that. This is why I said I want to go a little bit further, right? He's giving us that image because he wants us to understand that's how he's coming. And the brilliance of that is that what he's saying to comfort the Thessalonians is whatever you witnessed, your loved ones suffer as they were dying, friend, if it was a battle with cancer that lasted years and it was a war of attrition and it, was, it felt merciless, if it was a sudden accident that took them and it, it it was just grievous. Whatever death has done, Jesus will undo and he will reverse it. And whatever they suffered and whatever they endured, now the glory that will be theirs will be so much greater than whatever that diminishing pain was. That's what he's saying. I'm going to turn back death. I'm gonna turn it on its head it will be reversed. It would be one thing if he said, I'll undo it and they'll just be like they were. That's not what he's saying. I will undo it and they will be far better than they were. It will be a new thing and it will be glorious and it will be good. Is there some hope in that, church? Observation number seven. We will be united with the Lord and reunited with them. Look at verse 17 where he says these words, it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, so here's what he just said. They're coming with him. And again, we're imagining this is happening today so that we are those who are alive. But maybe, maybe the Lord will tarry and we'll be those who come with him from the heavens. The Lord comes down. He brings with him those who have died in him. Those who are alive rise up and they are united with him for the first time. The way our brothers and sisters have been in his presence where there's fullness of joy, we will see him face to face and we will be with him. Those who are alive will get the same joy and experience. And in that process, he could come by himself for us. Praise God, that would be sufficient and enough, but he doesn't just do that. He says, I'm going to bring them with me so that you're not just united with me, you're reunited with him. Now listen, sometimes people feel like it sounds cliche or trite to comfort people in the face of death by saying you will see them again, but that is biblical comfort, friends. If they are in Christ Jesus, that is the truth, and you should leverage it for all the comfort it's worth. You will see them again. That spouse who has gone to be with the Lord, my loved brother or sister, you're gonna see them again. You're gonna be with them again. Your brother or your sister, your sibling, your friend, you will be with them again. Praise God for that. Observation number eight. 
nothing will be able to change everything that we just said. Verse 17, end of it. He says, meet the, meet the Lord in the air. And then he says these words, and so we will always be with the Lord. Here's what he's saying there. He's saying, you know, the first time he came, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose, and then he ascended into heaven. He left. And the question might be asked by some of his followers, well, is that how it's going to go again? Is he going to come again? And then there's going to be this period of some other new period of redemptive history that he's going to work out, and then he's going to depart from us again. And then he'll return again, and maybe there's like a cycle of that that he wants to do. And he's putting an end to that question. He's answering that question saying, nope, that's not how it will be. When I come again, it will be permanent. It will be forever, and nothing will undo it. Not only can no power in heaven or in hell or in the earth prevent him from coming and establishing his kingdom, he wills to stay with us forever when he returns again. So you and I never have to worry that this is one more time where Jesus will come and make some things right and then go into heaven and then come back again. He's saying, when I come, I'm coming forever and you will be with me forever. Amen? Praise God for that. That's a source of great hope. He's saying, when I return, I'm returning for good. I'm returning for good and you will be with me. I love that. So... The permanence of that. The, think about that. The absolute permanence of all things good and right and true and beautiful at the return of Christ. In other words, what that means is, you know how sometimes you live through life and you think to yourself, like, if we're honest, sometimes we're waiting for the, for the other shoe to fall. Like, things are good now, but, eh, you know, in a week, what might happen? Or in two weeks, have you ever felt that way? You're just kind of like waiting for something bad to happen. That can certainly, because bad things do happen in this life. And what Jesus is declaring is, you'll never feel that way again. You'll never wonder, a week from now, is it going to get bad? A month from now, is something, is something going to change? He's saying, this is the permanence of all that is good and right and true and beautiful. That's what I'll bring about. Praise God for that. So friends, my, I told you my hope today was to just bring comfort to you. Those in need of comfort, those who will need it in the future, was that you would see that the return of Jesus is a great source of hope in the face of grief, the, the deepest kind of grief that there is, which is the grief over death. And my prayer is that, that God's word ministers that to you today. Let me say, to those of you who have lost someone and your sense is that they were not in the Lord, they were not in Christ, that is the most tragic thing there is death outside of Christ. And I just say that your church family grieves with you in that. And I invite you to consider, I do invite you to consider this, that just like the thief on the cross, sometimes we do not know, in fact, most of the time we do not know what God may have done in the last moments, in the last seconds of someone's life, perhaps in their own spirit, in their own mind, in their own soul to bring a profession of faith. We can hope in the mercy of God for that. We cannot promise it or know it, but we can hope in the mercy of God that perhaps he would do that to bring that about, even in the last moments of a life. And there's hope in that. A life spent apart from Christ can be rectified in one moment. And we pray God's mercy in that way. Friends, particularly for those of you who are not in Christ 
I just, I hope you hear the hope that is available to you. There is no other hope that has overcome the grave as he has overcome the grave. And our invitation to you is believe, believe. He extends himself to you. He says, come, my grace, my mercy is for you. You just believe. You don't have to do a work. You don't have to be good enough, smart enough, strong enough. Only need belief. That's our prayer today. Servers, why don't you come? We're gonna come to the Lord's table now and our worship team, you can come. And here's what I, you know, as we come to this table, we're in a very real way, family, we're coming to a table of grief, yes? Because this is a table where we remember the sacrifice of Christ, his death, which brings us grief, but also it's a table of hope because in this death, we declare the hope that we have both that we can be redeemed from our sins and saved from them, that we will be raised one day as he was raised one day and that he is coming again. We declare all of that in taking this table. So friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus, let these elements pass. It is for those who are in Christ, have declared their faith in him. We'll invite you to let this be a time where you consider his claims and the claims we've just made about his return and the hope that is found in it. Church family, as we come to the table, we consider our lives and we let him weigh them. We put our actions and our thoughts before him and we say, if anything doesn't please you, show me so that I might walk in confession and in repentance. And I invite you to weigh those things. And today specifically, I invite you and encourage you to consider how to walk in hope in the midst of grief. And even as you hold those elements to think about the hope that you have in him and celebrate that, rejoice in that. So church family, Let's receive the elements together. Servers, if you'd come.